Amen, indeed. Man, what a morning. Man, God is so good. I, I'm so glad we have a God who continues to seek and to save, and He works through all kinds of means to do that. Strangers, friends, families. Uh, he's good, and He's worthy of our worship. Well, good morning. Uh, my name's Josh, and I'm one of the pastors here just for the benefit of our guests. It's great to be with you today. A quick announcement for you as the baskets are making their way around. Uh, we have a meeting tomorrow night right here at 6.30. Uh, Scott mentioned the Killarne campus. They're going to be making the long trek up Thomasville Road uh, to join us for our family meeting. And uh, this is going to be a really important time for us to gather as a family and, and talk and think together about uh, some different ways that we feel like the Lord's leading us uh, into the future. And we would love for anyone who calls Four Oaks their home, whether you're a member or you consider this to be your church, we'd love for at least one representative from every family uh, to come out and be a part of that time. I know sometimes church meetings can be kind of lame, and uh, we're going to try to keep this one from being lame by having dessert and coffee and robust dialogue and all that good stuff. So come on at 6.30. We'll have you out of there by 8.30, Lord willing. No, seriously, we'll have you out of there by 8.30. We hope you'll come be a part of that. Also, uh, there's some handouts that we mailed out uh, a couple weeks ago. If you didn't get that, that's a great uh, uh, primer for what we're going to be discussing at the meeting. You can pick one of those up at the Connect desk on your way out today. But enough of that. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn in them to Revelation chapter 19. That's right. It's about to get apocalyptic. This morning's message is the third in our four-week series called Beyond the Shadowlands. And Shadowlands is just a word that C.S. Lewis used to describe life here on earth as we see it, as we experience it, and as we understand it. And we know, God's written it on our hearts, that there is something beyond this life. We know that there's, there's something more than just what we see and experience here on earth. And so we've been setting aside some time to ask these questions What lies beyond this life? Where is Jesus now? What is Jesus doing? What happens to us when we die? And what happens when the consummation comes, when when all of this ends? What happens at the last chapter? And this morning, so two weeks ago, we looked at the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And then last week, we looked at his rule and his intercession, his advocacy for us in heaven before the Father. And today, we are going to think about what happens at the end. What happens when Christ leaves heaven a second time to return to the earth? And we're going to to answer that question by considering Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. And as you're finding that in your Bibles, I want to tell you a story about a guy named Ron. Uh, Ron, back in the 70s, uh, met a young man at work whose name was Steve. Steve was young and energetic, and Steve told Ron that he was starting a new company with a friend of his. And they, these guys wanted Ron to come and be a part of their startup. And uh, Ron was older. He was more experienced. He brought some, uh, some gravitas to their organization. They wanted him to come be a part of it. And so he left his job and joined this startup. And things went pretty well for a little while. But before too long, he realized that these two younger men he was working with were headstrong and difficult. And adversity started to, started to crop up. Uh, in their work and relationship, and Ron began to lose confidence in the team that he had chosen, in the direction he'd chosen for his life. And so consequently, after a short time, he left the company that he helped found and uh, sold his share in the company, which amounted, amounted to about $800. And he took that $800 worth of uh, interest in the company and used it to buy some gold bars. Now, gold bars aren't like the worst thing you could do with your money, 
Like you could dig a hole in your backyard and stick it down there or something. Uh, you know, that investment made back then would be a few thousand dollars now. Uh, but here's the thing. The Steve that he went to go work with was Steve Jobs. And the startup company that he helped found was Apple Computers. And the $800 in stock that he cashed in back then would be worth about a cool $35 billion or so now. Ouch, right? Here's the point. Here's why I tell that story. Sometimes knowing the end of the story can help us when we're struggling in the middle of the story. And there was a group of Christians near the end of the first century who were struggling in the middle of their story. They were, uh, they were facing some serious adversity around 90 AD. They were facing persecution and oppression from a hostile Roman government that was growing increasingly hostile toward their practice of their faith. And they were in danger of losing confidence in the team that they had joined. And so God, in his mercy, gives to the Apostle John a vision of the end of the story, and that vision becomes our book of Revelation. Paul Tripp says that to be human is to be hardwired for hope. And these early Christians, in order for them to make it, in order for them to persevere in the shadowlands, they needed hope. And that's true of us too, isn't it? We need hope. And I believe there is much for us to fuel our hope in this text. And so uh, I want to invite you, if you're willing and able, please stand with me out of reverence for Christ and his word. And let's consider the word of God together from Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. The Apostle John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This then is the very word of God. You know, the grass withers and the flower falls, but not the word of God. The word of God remains forever. And may he write its eternal truth on our hearts. 
Amen. You may be seated. This morning, I want us to see two outcomes, two things we are guaranteed to see at Christ's return. They'll be our two points. First, Jesus is the vindication of our hope. Jesus is the vindication of our hope. And second, Jesus is the end of all evil. Let's look at them together first. Jesus, the vindication of our hope. Now, we're, we're a little bit familiar with at least parts of this text, if you have any time uh, spent in the church. And I don't, I don't want us to miss the impact of what he says on verse 11. John, John says, heaven opens. Heaven splits. Now, this has happened once before in Revelation. It happens in John chapter 4. Heaven opens so that John can peer inside and get a look at the scene that's taking place in heaven. But this isn't like that. This time, heaven opens to let Jesus out. And what John wants us to see is that there's a day coming when Jesus will no longer be hidden from our eyes as he is now. But he will be revealed as the culmination, the climax of all of history. And his second coming comes freighted with significance and and, and importance. And so John employs all of this rich imagery to paint a, a powerful picture of this coming King, Jesus Christ. I want us to to think for just a minute about the different ways that John describes Jesus when he appears. It says that he's seated on a white horse. Remember the last time we saw Jesus riding something, he was coming into Jerusalem on on Palm Sunday and he was riding a donkey. And he's upgraded his ride significantly now. He's upgraded to a war horse. A white horse is the mount that, that a Roman general in that day would have sat as he rode through the streets of Rome coming home victorious from battle. And everyone would have come out to see the conquering general come home. Jesus is riding on a war horse. He's called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. John wants us to see that Jesus Christ comes as as the demonstration, as the picture of God's faithfulness to his promise that dates all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. When sin first entered the world, God promised that a Redeemer would come to crush and conquer Satan. And Jesus appears as the fulfillment of that promise. God is true and trustworthy to his promises. And he's showing us that in Jesus Christ. It says he has eyes like flames of fire. Jesus sees and knows and judges all things. Nothing is hidden from his sight. When we think about the eyes of Jesus, we think back to John chapter 11, don't we? When Jesus is standing outside the tomb of his friend Lazarus, and what does he do? Jesus weeps at the consequence of sin in the death of his friend. And those same eyes that were, that were filled with tears on that day are now filled with fiery fury in judgment against all sin says that on his head are many diadems. A diadem is a crown. These crowns signify Jesus' royalty. He's the king who's coming back from the far country to reign in his kingdom and to put down all false rulers. It says he has a name which no one knows but himself. There's mystery to this returning king. And as much as we can know about him, there is much that we cannot know because Christ alone knows the fullness of who he is. 
In verse 13, the, the descriptive language takes a, a bit of a graphic turn. It says that he has a robe that's dipped in blood. Now, as I study this, there's some, there's some debate about whose blood that is, right? It could be his own blood shed at the cross, but I think in the context, it's far more likely that the blood is actually someone else's. If you look down at verse 15, it says, Jesus treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And he's recalling Old Testament prophetic language that was used to signify the wrathful judgments of God. And, and the, the word picture there is drawn from the way that they used to make wine. They would stomp grapes so that the wine would spill out. And that's used in the Old Testament as a picture of God's judgment against sin. The blood on his robe is the blood of his slain enemies. He comes as a, as a mighty warrior commanding his forces. The armies of heaven are with him. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. Christ is ready to wage war for righteousness. He gives two more names for Jesus. First, he is the word of God. He is the eternal logos from John chapter 1 who existed from the beginning with God. And he is the king of kings and lord of lords. And here's what John wants us to see. One day, Jesus will appear. He will return in his kingly glory to contend for us, to deliver us, and to right every wrong. He comes in power and he comes in judgment. And here's why this matters. Here's why we should care about this description of Jesus. Here's why it matters. You ready? Because things are pretty messed up here. Can I get an amen? Ever since sin entered the world, going all the way back to Genesis 3, as as we said, humanity and all of creation, according to Romans 8, has been groaning for this moment. We have been longing for redemption. We've been longing for the warrior king to come home. We've been hoping for him to to enter in power and to set right all that's gone wrong. And John wants us to see, when we see him on that day, we will see that our hope for rescue from all of the brokenness, all of the suffering, all of the injustice of life here in the Shadowlands, that hope wasn't in vain. You know, we love stories of, of a rescuer who comes in power, to save his people. We love books about heroes. We go to the movies to see stories about superheroes. We love stories like Star Wars, right? Anybody see the trailer for the new, the new one? Any nerds that will raise their hand like me? I saw it many times. There you go. I know you're there. Way to identify with me in my nerdiness. Chewy, we're home, right? The first Star Wars, the first Star Wars movie, and of course now I'm talking about A New Hope, from 1977, not the Phantom Menace from 1999, which was an abomination. But that's another, we don't have time. We don't have time. A New Hope is the story of a people downtrodden, oppressed by a wicked ruler whose only hope is the, is the warrior, the Jedi warrior who comes from a far off country to overthrow evil and to set the captives free. We love stories like that. There's something deep within us that finds resonance with those kinds of stories. And it starts at an early age too, doesn't it? For my kids, this is how my four kids play. They're all seven and under. Here's what it looks like when they play together when they're not, you know, fighting and asking us for things. 
the upside down laundry basket is the prison, right? And little Charlotte is inside the prison. She's the damsel in distress, okay? Titus is guarding the prison because he's the dragon, right? He hates being the dragon, but he's the only boy. So that's what happens. That's the way that goes. And Eva and Reagan are the rescuers sent from the far off country of upstairs to free the damsel in distress from the prison. We love a good rescue story. It's hardwired into who we are. And the scene that John is describing here, guys, it is the greatest rescue story the world has ever seen. Because Jesus is the rescuer who returns in power to right all wrongs and to end all injustices. And this is an important picture for us to have when we think about Jesus. You know, it's, uh, for many of us, we like to camp out on this picture of Jesus uh, as the one who became weak for us, as the one who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we must see Jesus that way. We need the suffering servant, Savior. But don't we also hope for a victorious Jesus who will come in power and deliver us? Don't we hope for that as well? The good news we see in this text is that Jesus is both. He is both. I I mentioned before that the original audience of this letter was suffering under political oppression. Their circumstances were bleak and they needed a Jesus who is both a kind and merciful Savior who identified with their suffering. But they also needed, they were also hoping for a mighty warrior king who could deliver them from that oppression. That's what they were hoping for. What about you? Where's the brokenness in your life? Where where are the wrongs that need righting in your situation? Where do you need Jesus to come both as a sympathetic Savior and as a strong deliverer? Maybe for you, the the point of your greatest need and pain is you just feel incredibly alone and isolated. Well, Jesus is the empathetic friend who draws near to you to comfort you. And he's also the strong shepherd who reaches out with his staff to gently lead you away from the dangerous places and to carry you back to the fold. Maybe for you, it's it's physical suffering. Maybe it's it's chronic pain that you live with as a day-to-day present reality. Well, Jesus is, is the comforter who identifies with your pain and reaches down to wipe the tears from your eyes. And he's also the great physician who has the power to heal you and to give you a glorified, resurrected body that's whole again. Maybe your greatest pain is abuse in your past, physical or sexual. Well, Jesus is the tender healer who gently binds up your wounds. And he's also the trial judge who sentences your abuser to prison for his crimes so that he can never harm you again. Maybe it's broken relationships an estranged child or spouse or friend. Jesus is the sympathetic counselor who listens and really understands. And he's the wise judge who decides disputes in righteousness. In Jesus, we see the perfect combination of mercy and justice, compassion and righteousness. The psalmist says that At the cross of Jesus Christ, faithfulness 
and steadfast love meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Those two things come together perfectly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And on the day that he appears in glory, we will see the fullness of that on display. And so if you're hoping for that today, you can know that you have not hoped in vain. And now listen, I want want to say this as well. There's something obviously difficult about this, isn't there? If the vindication of our hope is promised only at Jesus' return, that means that we might not see the healing of our deepest wounds in this life. It means that we might not get closure on our pain before he returns. You know, that, that's often the greatest point of pain in pastoral ministry. As we're seeking to walk with people through these struggles. And this is something that we have to reckon with as God's people. The promise of the gospel is not, Jesus is for you, now go live the rest of your days free of suffering and hardship. That's not the promise of the gospel, is it? The promise of the gospel is, Jesus says, I will give you myself. Jesus is for you, and one day he will set right all that's wrong, and one day he will give you a life free of pain. But until that day comes, he promises to be enough for you. And you can know that day is coming. You can be confident that one day the clouds are going to split and he's going to appear. And you will see that you have not hoped in vain. You know, at the very end of his life, the Apostle Paul uses a term that I find really interesting to describe Christians. He calls Christians in 2 Timothy 4, those who have loved his appearing. Why do we love his appearing, church? Because that's when our best life begins. His appearing is when all the bad stuff begins to come untrue. Because whatever loss you've suffered in this life, that's when you get it all back. That's what we're waiting for. That's our hope. Ligon Duncan says that if you're not living this life in anticipation of the next one, You're not living this life well. My prayer for us this week is that we would be a church who loves his appearing, that we look forward to it in hope and anticipation, that we would pray, come, Lord Jesus. Because when he comes, we will see that he is the vindication of our hope. The second outcome we will see when he returns, we'll see that Jesus is the end of all evil. In verse 17, an angel shows up as a herald and he summons the birds of the air to come and to feast on the flesh of those who are about to be killed in battle. There's this army that's arrayed against Jesus and his army. And the angel is standing up. He's in the sun. And he says to the birds, God is about to bring about complete and utter disaster on his enemies. So get ready to feast. This is, and I find this really interesting what happens next. There's no battle narrated in the text. You notice that? It goes straight from the drawing up of the armies in verse 19 to the defeat of Jesus' enemies in verse 20. There's no battle of Helm's Deep like in Lord of the Rings. There's no battle for Hogwarts Castle like in Harry Potter. And by the way, if you're keeping score at home, that's Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter. That's the nerd trifecta. There's some sort of achievement unlocked there. I don't know what it is. No battle. Just complete and utter disaster for God's enemies. 
It's almost as if the war is ended immediately because the victory has already been won. And the army of God's adversaries and the forces arrayed against him are destroyed to be food for the birds of the air. And what John wants us to see here is that when Jesus comes back, God's enemies are destroyed. Evil is ended. Completely and utterly. And can we talk about this for a second, though? This is some pretty intense stuff. Let's not, let's not whitewash the scene that's being painted for us here. It's gory. And to our, our cultural sensibilities, it's offensive, isn't it? You start proclaiming this. You start saying that you believe that God's going to behave in this way. And people will immediately respond and say, that is so primitive and antiquated and unenlightened. Why is that? Because our culture loves gentle Jesus, don't they? But not judging Jesus. Our culture is all well and good with Jesus right up to the point that he starts to deal with sin. I have a quote here from Charles Darwin. I'm not going to put it on the screen because it's a Charles Darwin quote. And it's a bad one, but here it is. I can indeed hardly see how anyone ought to wish Christianity to be true. For if so, the plain language of the biblical text seems to show that men who do not believe, and this would include my father, brother, and most of my friends, will be everlastingly punished. And this is a damnable doctrine. That's the spirit of our age. And can we just be like gut level honest for a second? I can feel a little bit that way too at times, can't you? I'm not always super comfortable with a God who judges like this. A God who makes his enemies food for the birds of the air. But the corrective here for me and for us is is this. We have to remember how necessary and good and in fact loving divine judgment actually is. First thing we have to consider in that is there's an issue is God's character. We cannot minimize the holiness of God. If God doesn't deal with sin, then he's not God and he's not worthy of our worship. If there's no penalty for violating his decrees, then he's not God at all. There's a second issue as well. If there's no judgment of sin, think about this. There really is no hope for people who have been victims of awful injustices. If victimizers never get called to account for their sin, then what hope is there for the people who have been crushed by the weight of what they did? April 19th is, uh, is the anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombings where 168 people were killed by a bomb set by Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols in 1995. Today's the 20th anniversary of it. And there's an article on USA Today uh, this morning about the victims and, and how that case really became a watershed moment for victims' rights in the U.S. And there's something about Uh, about this story that really jumped out at me. It says, When the trials of McVeigh and Nichols moved from a badly scarred Oklahoma City to Denver, there was a group that sought and won an act of Congress to allow cameras in a federal courtroom to stream the proceedings via a closed-circuit television back to an auditorium near the Oklahoma City airport. And that group was a group of family and friends of the victims. And then when McVeigh was sentenced was uh, convicted and sentenced to death, Oklahoma victims did one better. They convinced the then U.S. Attorney General John Ashcroft to broadcast McVeigh's execution at an Indiana federal prison back to Oklahoma, 
where the survivors and victims' families wanted to see, here's the important sentence, they wanted to see final justice for themselves. When you have experienced the kind of victimization that that a person in that situation felt, you understand what it means to long for God's justice. There's a psalm that that always pulls me up short every time I read it. It's Psalm 137. And it's a, it's a psalm that God's people sang after the Edomites of Babylon came and ransacked and leveled Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. They salted the earth. They murdered many of the Israelites, including men, women, and children. And any who, anyone who survived the raid, they carried off into captivity in Babylon. And here's the song that the people of Israel would sing to commemorate their journey into captivity. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion on the willows there, we hung up our lyres, lyres, a musical instrument for our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If my t- let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth, if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you for what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. And as hard as that is to read, people who have suffered that kind of injustice can relate to this. Friday's Wall Street Journal had a a photo on the front page of a young woman wrapped in an Israeli flag, and she was standing outside of Auschwitz-Birkenau, the World War II Nazi death camp, commemorating National Holocaust Remembrance Day. And if there is no judgment for sin, what do we say to her about Adolf Hitler and the systemic genocide of millions of Jews? What hope is there for the child who is abused by the person who is supposed to protect and look out for them? What do we do if there is no judgment about ISIS and the children that they have murdered and burned alive. What do we do with that? I got a very small glimpse of this in my own life recently. Many of you know uh, we have two, two uh, children that we adopted from Uganda two years ago almost. And uh, our seven-year-old, Eva, had to have surgery this week to repair a hole in her eardrum. And the doctor, when he was explaining it to us, told us that it was very possible that she has that hole in her eardrum because of a blunt trauma she experienced when she was younger. As in, it's very possible that someone hit my little girl so hard that it caused a hole in her eardrum before I was able to protect her and watch out for her. It's hard to describe the feeling of frustration and anger mixed with helplessness that I felt in that moment. And the question I I was asking was, what am I supposed to do with that? I need, we need, and the world needs a God who judges sin. And make no mistake, he will. And this is the sobering 
truth and the sobering hope of Christ's return. Every sin will be judged and no one gets away with what they've done. Babylon didn't get away with it. Just a chapter before Revelation 19, we see Babylon get their comeuppance and they are completely destroyed. Adolf Hitler may have committed suicide before he was captured by allied forces, but make no mistake, he did not get away with what he did. ISIS will not get away with what they're doing in the Middle East right now. And if someone struck my little girl so hard that it punctured her eardrum, they won't get away with it either. The penalty for every sin will come crashing down, and it will come down either upon the sinner on the day of judgment or it will come down on the Savior who suffered in the place of every sinner who will trust in him. Understand this, at his first coming, when Jesus went to the cross, he did not merely die as a good example of love and humility and self-sacrifice. No, no, he died as the sin bearer, the wrath absorber for all who would repent of their sin and turn to him in faith. And again, let's be sobered by this. You and I will not get away with our sin either. We will either take shelter under the blood of the lamb slain for us, or we will shed our own blood for our sins on the last day. And the question this presses forward with incredible urgency for us today is this, which will it be for you? Brothers and sisters, this text is a gift because God is revealing to us the end of the story. How will we live in light of it? Heard the story recently of World War II POWs, a small group of them who were able to cobble together enough scrap pieces of equipment to build a makeshift radio receiver and they could hear radio broadcasts and get updates on what was going on in the war. And five or six days before the war ended, they, they got word via their radio that the Allied forces had won the victory and that the German army had collapsed. But here was the reality of, wh- of what they were living with. Their circumstances weren't even one bit better in that moment. They were still hungry. They were still cold. They were still malnourished. They were still mistreated. They were still imprisoned and suffering in the exact same way that they were the previous day. Nothing had changed. But you know what? Everything had changed because they knew the end of the story. And if you're a Christian, you know the end of the story. There is a day coming when the king will appear and the hope that you've been clinging to and fighting for and asking God to fan into flame day by day, Sunday by Sunday, morning by morning, that hope will be vindicated. And when you're tempted to lose heart, remember you know the final chapter of your story has already been written and it is glorious. Resurrection, eternal life, tears wiped away, reunion with those whom you've lost. Love his appearing, church. And if you're not a Christian, you know the end of the story as well. And I just want to plead with you this day to flee from the wrath of God that is coming against all sin. Take shelter under the blood of the Lamb.
Every one of us stands guilty before God on the basis of our own righteousness. We have no righteousness to offer him. By our thoughts, attitudes, intentions, and actions, we have failed to be who he has commanded us to be. Every one of us deserves to be separated from him eternally in judgment. But Jesus Christ came to live the life that we could not live of perfect obedience to God. Jesus went to the cross to die the death that our sin demanded. And he rose in victory over our enemies of Satan, sin, and death. And all who will repent of their sin, who will repent of their own righteousness and trust in him, get his perfect righteousness credited to them. And that hope is available to you this day. Jesus came the first time to reconcile us to God, and he will come a second time to vindicate our hope, to put an end to all evil forever, to bring about his judgments, and to take us out of the shadow lands. And may each one of us be found in him on that day. Amen?